0: Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. To learn more about Believer's Church, where our mission is to lead broken people to become fully devoted followers of Christ, you can visit our website at Believer'sChurch.tv. Listen in as Pastor Matt Smith brings this week's message. I'd like to welcome you to Believers Church Online. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're watching with us on Sunday morning as we show it the first time, or if it happens to be a little bit later in the day or through the week, we're just grateful Whatever whatever's brought you here, uh, we're grateful that you're watching. I do want to encourage you, if you don't go to church on a regular basis, if you would consider yourself maybe, maybe not to be a religious person, or, or, or not a Christian, or you've been away from that for a long time, or you're just kind of on the outside of that and you're curious, you think it's a bunch of garbage, whatever that might be, I'd love to encourage you uh, to listen to what we're talking about today because it's going to be very, uh, very important. We're in the second part of a series, a seven-week series titled Eternity is Now in Session. And we are discussing salvation, eternal life, and what it means to get in the good place. We wanna highlight um, some important misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian and and what it means to go to heaven. We talked about this last week in part one as a false ideology uh, that a lot of us bought into if we grew up in conservative, evangelical uh, churches in the South and how to kind of deconstruct what all of that looks like so that we have an understanding of what it means to authentically follow Jesus, which is the most important decision that you could ever make. I do want to really quickly mention that also next Sunday, which is going to be May the 24th, we are going to be having services here again. We are really excited about that. We are going to provide some guidelines for coming back so that we make sure that we're safe and we're being precautious in every possible way. But on May the 24th at 10 a.m., We really want to encourage you uh, to join us here. We promise that we are going to make this a safe place. So today in uh, part two, what I want to discuss is what could be called the minimum entrance requirements and why this kind of talk or why this thought process is actually so problematic. This is something that a lot of people subscribe to that don't go to church And also, a lot of people, in fact, I'm going to venture to say the majority of the people that are in the church, actually subscribe to this idea of meeting the minimum entrance requirements. For many people, whenever they talk about heaven or the idea of an afterlife, for them, it's a lot like making the cut, all right, making sure that their name in the end is on that list. And it really doesn't matter what they do in the in-between, It really doesn't matter what this life actually looks like. Most of these people will trace some religious experience back, maybe to childhood, maybe to early adulthood. But really what they're looking for is, do I make the cut at the end? Is heaven where I'm going to go? Now, this logic that people live with, this false ideology, this this incorrect narrative that people live within, it looks something like this. I want to go to heaven whenever I die. You know, I want to make sure that I go to the good place. So I'm going to try to be a good person, or I'm going to occasionally go to church. I'm going to occasionally talk to God, especially when I'm in trouble and things are really bad. Maybe I'm going to make the occasional, occasional charitable donation. And some people, what they do, if they don't have a background of a religious experience, what a lot of people do is they just reframe or or they frame their own ideology in its entirety. Uh, They kind of develop this this idea of what they believe God would be like. Well, well, God must be good. God must care about me. God must not want to hurt me. They develop these views. And then they kind of have this conception or this idea of what heaven is supposed to look like. And it's somewhere that they really hope that they can go when they die so that they can see family or they can avoid hell or, or whatever that might look like. And I want to make the argument today that this is very faulty logic and that there are some problems with this concept that we develop of minimum entrance requirements. In fact, we don't even really recognize or realize that we're using that kind of language, all right, this minimum entrance requirement. So this is what I want really to get through today. If this is your view that you're trying to meet the minimum entrance requirements, that you want to make sure that you go to heaven or experience eternal life whenever you die, but whenever you're here, life is kind of all about you and your decisions and your family and your job and your directions because God just wants you to be happy. That's kind of the way theologically that you see God then the argument that I'm making is that you're getting started on the wrong foot. And you're completely missing the beauty of what you were actually created for. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, you can look at the words that we are going to have on the screen for you today. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Again, this is the common English Bible, Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And this is what Paul is saying in his letter uh, to the church in Ephesus about this concept or this idea of eternal life and salvation. Starting in verse 1, this is what he says. At one time, you were like a dead person, Because of the things that you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to act like most people in our world do. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons— all of you used to do, all of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted to do and you were children that were headed for punishment like everyone else. However, and this is really the critical part of the passage right here, this is the transition. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this, why did he do this? He did this because of his great love that he has for us. You are saved, this is very familiar scripture, you are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown in Christ Jesus. This is something that the world had never known before and something that the world hasn't known since. Now, this is the real familiar passage right here. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something that you possessed or something that you could bring about on your own. It's not something that you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. That good things part is really important. God planned for these things, for these good things, to be the way that we live our lives. So there is a goal in mind as Paul is writing this portion of this letter uh, to this incredible church in the city of Ephesus. This is who you were when you were dead, when you were practicing things your way, when you were trying to be who you wanted to be, when you were seeking the spouse that you wanted, when you were seeking simply the career that you wanted, when you were trying to make decisions with your finances, where you were gonna live, the home you were gonna purchase, the car you were gonna drive, all by your, own, by your own volition and decision-making. That's who you were, and you were actually dead. And now this is who you are. You are actually alive. You are new. You are made for something completely unique. You are made for something better. And there is this identity that you have. There is this part of you that you have actually never realized, but you are coming to life. Now, this is the presence and the process of what it means to come alive. Paul talks about this in his letter to the church, um, the Philippian, the Philippian individuals, the church in Philippi. He talks about th- Philippi. He talks about this when he talks about working out our salvation. It's a process that we go through as believers that is called salvation, and then ultimately is called sanctification. So it's all these new experiences that we express and that we feel as we start to come to life. So for for those of you who look at salvation or you look at eternal life, as we talk about eternity now being in session, for those of you that live by what we've called minimum entrance requirements, I'm going to do the least amount that I can, but as long as I go to heaven when I die, everything's going to be okay. There are three problems that I want to identify today here in part two with trying to live by the minimum insurance requirements. And please understand this, because I know that there are people who regularly go to our church, Believer's Church, as well as people who go to other churches or people that are, that are watching this right now or listening to this right now, and you feel that you've had an experience with God in the past because of a prayer that you prayed, but you've really made no real changes to your life whatsoever. All right, there are three problems that I want us to see with these minimum entrance requirements. And the first one is this. Dead people can't meet any requirements. All right, it's not that you can't meet the minimum requirements, but if you are actually still dead, you can't meet any requirements anyway. And the majority of people in society as well as the majority of the people that are in our churches every single week are actually still dead. They just don't know it. Some know it, but a lot of them don't even know it. This is what the passage says in verses one through three, Uh, skipping around a little bit. At one time, you were like a dead person because of the things that you did wrong and your offenses against God. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is a spirit of disobedience to God's will. Whenever you're doing your own thing as you go through life, this is disobedience to God's will. You used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted. Does that sound familiar to so many people? You're continuing to do the things that you want. You're continuing to make the decisions that you want to make, and you're still in the driver's seat of your life because you're still dead. There is a word that sums all of this up, And I get it, this is not a a, a popular word in society anymore. In fact, we we rarely ever hear it. But the word that sums all of this up is sin. It's this concept that we would call sin. And you can't do anything about it yourself. Your salvation experience, coming to know God, eventually going to heaven, is about ridding yourself yourself of sin and destructive behavior that actually hurts you. You may not recognize this, but a lot of this comfort, a lot of the things that you're crazy about, that you care about, that you believe are driving you forward, are actually hurting you. And this is a result of what we call sin. So it actually has very little to do with simply saying a prayer and then going to heaven one day when we die. Or trying really, really hard to be a good person and then one day going to heaven when we die. We often use this idea. It's a a very common concept in these circles that I've talked about, what I grew up in. And often we refer to it as the sinner's prayer, all right, as a means to get to heaven, all right. Now, please understand this because this is very important. This idea of the sinner's prayer or reciting a prayer at the end of a church service, or in the Walmart parking lot, or at an altar, or wherever that might be, this is a rather new invention. All right, The idea of, of getting saved by sinners' prayer is actually a relatively new invention. It springs from the tent revivals and the movement in evangelistic circles in the early 20th century. So think Billy Sunday. Think Billy Graham. All right? These are two, two really common names with this. Now please understand this. I love the sinner's prayer, all right? I don't have anything against the sinner's prayer. In fact, whenever I accepted Christ, whenever I was 16 years old, I said a variation of a prayer just like that whenever I accepted Christ. Often at this church and at my former church, and when I speak other places, you will hear me lead people in what you might refer to as the sinner's prayer. So I don't have a problem uh, with the sinner's prayer. I think it's a beautiful thing. But I guess what I'm really trying to stress to you is that we believe that we can simply recite certain words or repeat someone else's words, and then we go to heaven, and that is all that is actually required of us. All right, that's where I believe that we run into a problem. So, what we do is we treat this prayer a lot like an entrance application. You know, whenever you go to college or you, you start a new job or you're signing up for some new social organization or whatever it might look like, and you have an entrance application, a lot of times that's the way that we look at this prayer, and then we never go any further than this entrance application. And if we do, it's for a very short period of time because we're kind of really reeling in these wonderful new emotions, and then the emotions kind of stop, and other things start to look more appealing, and then all of a sudden we, we quit. So, please hear this. Specifically reciting a sinner's prayer is not required for salvation like one specific prayer with a certain set of words. But the decision to turn your life over in that moment or over time as the Spirit continues to work on you is required for salvation. There needs to be some kind of confession of course, with your mouth, with your words. But the decision that you actually make within to turn is the most important thing. So the issue that we have is that a lot of people are still walking around dead. Some of them know it. Some of them don't know it. Some of them are convinced everything is okay when it's actually not okay. Remember, from last week, salvation is not about getting you into heaven. It's about heaven getting in to you. It's about bringing up there, down here. It's about experiencing a radical, new way of life, a transformed way of life that is completely different than what we see in culture and what we see in society. That is what it's all about. So here's another problem with trying to meet the minimum entrance requirements. It's not simply that that dead people can't meet any requirements. Obviously that's an issue. But think about this as well as far as what our passage says. Grace and mercy, which is what Paul talks about. This is what we get from God. Grace and mercy nullify or erase or abolish minimum entrance requirements. The experience of grace or the experience of mercy are actually so incredible to the person that is accepting this new way of life of following Jesus. This experience is so incredible that to talk about minimum entrance requirements, well, it really just doesn't even make any sense. When we truly experience the grace and mercy of God in our lives, it moves us far beyond the desire for anything minimum. Consider, we could consider so many stories in Scripture, but consider the woman at the well. Consider when she understands the sin and the brokenness in her life. And when Jesus offers a new lease on life and a new opportunity, notice that we don't see her pray a prayer and then go back with the men that she had been with. No, instead, everything changes. In fact, the first thing that she does is she goes and tells everyone about this Jesus and about the decision that she has made to follow him. You see, the minimum entrance requirements don't even make sense. But instead, what the majority of people do, and I want you to think about this, all of you that are listening today, what the majority of people do is they're kind of playing this game, let's make a deal. All right, I'll give you this amount of me. You know, maybe this is in the form of I'll start going to church on Sundays as long as I can go to heaven. I will try to be a good person to the best of my ability as long as I can make the cut, as long as I can go to heaven. And you see, this is still thinking within the minimum entrance requirements and has nothing to do with the incredible experience of grace and mercy. And those of you that are watching right now. Those of you that are listening right now. When I talk about that grace and I talk about that mercy and what you have been delivered from and you can still recognize that. 6 months later. 35 years later, you can still recognize that you know exactly what I'm talking about that the minimum entrance requirements and simply thinking about your salvation experiences Well, one day I'm gonna go to heaven when I die to see Uncle Bob or or to see my wife or to experience something much better than the alternative, which might be hell. There is so much more to it than that. Uh, Verses four and five say this, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead. It's death to life. As a result of those things that we did wrong, He did this because, why did he do this? What does this grace and mercy translate to? He did this because of the great love he has for us. You are saved. You are transformed. You are changed. You are radically made new by God's grace. And that is not something that you can abuse. Two important things. The first is this. Again, those who truly experience grace are so consumed with knowing and needing God that minimum entrance requirements simply don't make any sense. Because these individuals, myself included, have no desire to return back or go back to where they were. So this isn't simply an emotional experience that says, I'm going to pray this prayer because I really want to go to heaven and I know that I've screwed up. This is an experience of turning a page. This is an experience of saying, I'm finished. God loves me that much and I'm an addict. God loves me that much and I've been divorced three times. Consider the woman at the well. God loves me and I struggle so much with doubt and fear and anxiety. God loves me that much and I keep trying so hard but constantly experience the same kind of shame over and over again. It transforms us from the inside because we recognize that we have a completely new lease on life. But also people that experience God's grace cannot make any sense out of staying the same, because what they were when they were dead scares them so much that they have no desire whatsoever to return to that. They have come to the end of themselves. The famous theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Bonhoeffer would often talk about specifically in his, in his classic work, Cost of Discipleship, he, he talked about this concept called cheap grace, all right, and there is no substitute for the real thing. And so many people are living on what we would call cheap grace. And this is, this is how Bonhoeffer defines it. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. And it's grace without Jesus. And the experience that so many people in the church have, and in the, the reason that we are the way that we are, and often we are making such a small impact and the reason that we talk so much about hypocrisy and the difficulties that we're going through, especially in this time right now, is because so many people are banking on this experience of cheap grace. So we could sum it up this way. Undeserved and unearned favor, this, this, this grace, is the only thing that rescues us. And when it does, The minimum entrance requirements, or doing what we can to simply make the cut, does not satisfy. So the last issue that we have, the third, with with trying to meet the minimum entrance requirements, as so many people are seeking to do, is this. Faith, which is what's required of us, faith is the opposite. It's the antithesis. It's completely in the other direction. Of anything minimum. Verses 8 and 9. You are saved by God's grace. Why? How? Because of your faith. Pistis in Greek. The action to turn directions. This salvation is God's gift. Not something that you possessed by your ability to be good. I am a past member, some of you may not know this, but I'm also a sociology professor at a community college in Kentucky, I'm I'm still there, and I'm a past member of the American Sociological Association. All prestigious sociologists, and then some, like me, are members of the ASA. All right, the American Sociological Association. Now, many of the people that are in this uh, organization, they publish and they present and they go to the same annual conferences and they are experts in their field and they are putting forth all of this effort to be incredible at what they do. Now, let me tell you why I signed up at the time back in 2007 or 2008 for the American Sociological Association. I signed up to be a member because I knew it would look good on resumes. I knew that as I started to look for a job out of grad school that if I was a member of the ASA that it would help me. And guess what? It did. It helped me, it got me a job. And you wanna know what the minimum entrance requirements were? and still are, and the only thing that I had to do, pay the annual fee. As long as I paid the $100 or the $125, whatever it was, I was able to be a member of the American Sociological Association. So stay with me. Now I want you to think about marriage. Marriage, a good marriage, a marriage that lasts a marriage that stands the test of time, a marriage that involves mutual submission from both parties that love one another takes a tremendous amount of work. It takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice. It takes a tremendous amount of trust and faith in the other person If it's going to work. And there have been times, and and, and Beth and I love each other very much, but there have been times that we have felt like we were barely holding on. And in those moments that were very difficult, we trusted in one another, we made the commitment to continue we looked back on the vows that we recited to one another before God for this one-flesh ideology, and we made the commitment and continue to make that commitment every single day. Your relationship with God, your salvation experience, your concept or understanding of eternal life and going to heaven must be like a marriage. But unfortunately, the majority of people look at it the same way that I do or did the American Sociological Association. They are seeking to do the absolute minimum And then hoping for a good outcome. Any good marriage takes faith in the other person. And a lack of this, as some of you know, is really no marriage at all. So the question that I have for you today, um, as we close, when you look at a relationship with the Creator, when you look at what you were actually made for. When you look at the sacrifice and the commitment and everything that is supposed to take place on your part, how would you describe your salvation relationship with God? Minimum entrance requirements or the daily commitment? Of a good marriage. Because if it's anything less than that. I want to encourage you. Today. Before this message. Even ends. To reach out. Shoot me a message on Facebook. So that we can talk about this. So that we can connect you with other people. At Believers Church. That would love to be able to talk about exactly where you are because you can turn things over because i'll tell you what i know and that is that there are people that are listening right now that are watching right now that are broken and are hurting and some of you really not just from an emotional sense you really have at this moment you are coming to the end of yourself and that grace and that mercy is something that you wish to understand deeper the minimum entrance requirements or the commitment of a good marriage would you pray with me father we come to you today just thanking you so much for continuing to love us god we thank you for the richness Of this grace and of this mercy, Father, something that we can't develop or or produce or manufacture on our own. The only thing that we can do, Father, is trust you in faith that you are good enough. And that because of the grace we experience through your Son and sending him to this earth for us, but not simply just that, but also the ability to follow him. In the 21st century, in the here and now, to experience eternity here in this world. God, we thank you for that. And we lift up those who are struggling today. Specifically, God, those who are asking questions in this very moment. Those who have doubted the existence of God. Those who have asked the big questions that so many of us have asked at different places in our lives. Father, we turn these hungry hearts over to you. And we ask that you do an incredible work in their lives. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit our Believer's Church Facebook page or our website at believerschurch.tv If you enjoyed this message, please make sure to subscribe and join us next week as we continue our mission to lead broken people to become fully devoted followers of Christ.